Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the cases of Daniel Adalpe and David Dunn in Las Vegas, Nevada. With its millions of lights, Las Vegas is considered the brightest spot on Earth. It's home to more than half of the 20 largest hotels in the world. One night in the presidential suite at the Bellagio Hotel in the Spa Tower will cost you $5,000. Again, that's for a single night. According to Easy Vegas, the largest jackpot was hit on the Megabuck slot machine at the Excalibur Hotel in 2003, the winner cashed in a whopping $39,713,982.25. The chance to strike it big brings millions of visitors to Sin City each year. According to Statista.com, for the past 10 years, minus 2020, roughly 40 million tourists passed through marveling at the bright lights, fine dining, and lavish hotels on the Strip. Millions of others flock to the city looking for new jobs and a chance to start over. But beyond the bright lights and big city atmosphere lies another population. In Clark County, local officials estimate that 1.8% of the population, or 34,397 residents, are homeless. Some of those find their way to shelters, but many find themselves living on the streets. In 2015, a survey was conducted that found that most of them are white and middle-aged men between the ages of 51 and 60. 13% were veterans, and 71% became homeless while living in the area. Of that 71%, half of them attributed the loss of their jobs to their homeless status. However, many others also have medical conditions and mental health illnesses that force them out of their jobs and homes. With homelessness comes a higher risk of becoming the victim of a violent crime. A study from the National Healthcare for the Homeless Coalition found nearly half, 49% for men and 48% for women, of those surveyed reported experiencing violence and the older homeless population faced an especially high risk of experiencing a violent attack. On November 30th of 2016, a homeless man was sleeping near Main Street Station when he was attacked. According to CBS News, the attack had been quick. The unnamed man never saw his assailant, didn't know why he had been attacked, and wasn't able to offer police any clues. With nothing to go on, police weren't able to track down the perpetrator. And at the time, the attack was written off as just a one-off thing, the type of violence that many view as something that just kind of happens to those who live a transient lifestyle. 
No one could have predicted that this was the beginning of a rash of violent attacks on homeless men in that area that would end in brutal, senseless murder. But that is exactly what happened. According to KTNV News, a little over a month after the first attack, on January 4, 2017, at around 12.30 a.m., the body of a man was found in downtown Vegas near City Parkway in Ogden, not far from the Main Street station and the scene of the first attack. At first, people assumed the man was simply sleeping, wrapped in a blanket near a power box. But when someone stopped to check on him, they discovered he was unresponsive and notified officials. Initially, police didn't reveal whether they considered the death to be suspicious, and details were hard to come by. However, days later, the Las Vegas Metro Police announced that they believed the man had suffered from blunt force trauma injuries to the head, and that the victim was believed to be homeless and living in the area. His body had been sent to the Clark County Coroner's Office for further examination. The Clark County Coroner's Office confirmed to the Las Vegas Journal Review that the man had been murdered, his skull completely crushed. Las Vegas Metro Police announced that they had no suspects and absolutely zero motive for the murder. They later revealed that although the attack had been brutal, nothing had been taken from the man and the attack was completely unprovoked. The victim was later identified as 46-year-old Daniel Adalpe. He had been sleeping when he had been attacked. Daniel Adalpe wasn't originally from the Las Vegas area, he was actually from Chicago, and so it took time for investigators to track down his family. But that didn't stop advocate for the homeless Kate Krikorkian from organizing a vigil to honor Daniel's life. Kate spoke to 8 News Now and said that Daniel Adalpe deserved to be more than a victim and a homicide case number. Kate and other advocates gathered to honor Daniel's life and mourn his death, holding a vigil near where Daniel's life had ended so senselessly, lighting candles and honoring a man most of them had never met. Twenty days after his murder, Daniel's family back home was notified of his death. They spoke to Newsbreak and revealed that Daniel had moved to Vegas and worked in radio for a while before moving on to work at Home Depot. Eventually, he fell on hard times and began living at a homeless shelter. That was until roughly four months prior to his murder, when Daniel lost his place at the shelter and was out living on the streets of Vegas, often sleeping in the area where his body had been found. Despite his situation in life, Daniel always kept in touch with him. He called every few weeks to catch up and had plans to be in his sister's upcoming wedding. But now, instead of wedding preparations, his family was planning a funeral. Fred Schulke, the man who had raised him, said that Daniel was a good person. He wasn't a fighter and would never hurt anybody. The people closest to him couldn't imagine him getting into a fight with anyone. How his life could have ended so violently just didn't make any sense. The violent nature of the attack wasn't adding up for police either. Daniel had been sleeping when someone had snuck up and beat him with no provocation or warning. No one had witnessed the attack, there were no surveillance cameras in the area, 
and Daniel had no known enemies. The police had zero in the way of suspects and very little to go on. It appeared to be just a random act of violence. But that theory wouldn't last long, because according to KTNV News, a month later on February 3rd, 2017, at around 9 a.m., officers were dispatched to the same location and found David Dunn deceased with similar injuries. He, too, had been bludgeoned to death as he slept, just like Daniel. Police revealed that the attack had happened between 1 a.m. when David had last been seen alive by friends and 9 a.m. when his body had been found. From the moment they responded to the second homicide scene, Las Vegas Metro Police strongly suspected the murders and the November 30th attack were connected. Someone was targeting homeless men, brutally beating them as they slept. As with Daniel, nothing had been taken either. So again, robbery was quickly ruled out as a motive. Was there a serial killer loose on the streets of Las Vegas, preying on the most vulnerable members of society as they slept? It sure was looking like it. On Friday, February 10th, 2017, friends gathered in a Central Valley church to remember David Dunn. The Las Vegas Review-Journal reported on the service. David Dunn was 60 years old and known as a best friend to many on the streets. One of his friends, Jimmy Laird II, spoke during the service, stating, Dave was always there to make people feel better. He was my best friend out here. I'm still trying to figure it out. Usually when you have enemies, you know who they are. Dave would never hurt nobody. Others recounted their shock at Dave's brutal murder. His friend of 15 years, Kit, spoke, saying, I mean, we all have to die, but the brutality of it, that's what's hard to accept. He went on to detail the story of first meeting Dave while waiting in line at McDonald's. He said, Dave, with those crazy thick glasses, came up to me and said, do you want something? He bought me a soda. I said, aren't you going to get something too? He said, I don't have any money. That was Dave. He would give his last penny to anyone. Kit went on to say, You've got such polar opposites here. Dave, who didn't have anything except joy and giving. And you got the guy who did this. Total opposites. There were tears and a few laughs shared as everyone told their favorite Dave story. Many laughing at the fact that the only photo they had of Dave was one of him with a serious face and without a hat. But the Dave they knew was always smiling and rarely seen without his hat. Pastor Jason Adams joked that they should probably paint one on that photo. After the service at lunch, everyone gathered to eat. The chair Dave Dunn usually sat in was empty. A bouquet of flowers and a single lit candle marked Dave's regular spot. Dave Dunn was proof that regardless of your situation in life, you can always find ways to be of service to others. It was clear that Dave had been a friend to many. As Dave's friends gathered to remember him, police were at a loss for leads in who was responsible for his death. They turned to the public, hoping that someone out there knew who had so callously murdered Dave and Daniel. But if anyone did, they sure weren't coming forward. 
the days and weeks ticked on with no leads. That's when Captain Andrew Walsh of the Las Vegas Metro Police hatched an out-of-the-box and maybe a little bit crazy of a plan. Captain Walsh later told a tv all about it. The officer recalled that he knew he needed to act fast because he felt they were definitely dealing with a serial killer. With no witnesses and no weapons left behind at the scene, no surveillance video, and no leads coming in from the public, he had to think on his feet. His experience and intuition told him that if he was correct and it was a serial killer they were dealing with, the suspect would return back to the scene. And the suspect would surely return if he was lured in with, shall we call it bait? Officer Walsh's crazy idea was to use a mannequin disguised as a homeless person sleeping to lure the killer back into the same spot. He reached out to the captain in charge of search and rescue and asked if they had any life-sized sea and rescue CPR mannequins for training and if they did, if he could borrow one. The captain did, and of course he was willing to let Captain Walsh use one. He, too, thought the plan just might be crazy enough to work. But not everyone felt that way. Some from the department were uncomfortable with the whole idea. I mean, decoy operations are common in narcotic stings or vice operations, but using a mannequin to catch a murderer? That was unheard of. The captain recalled that some of the officers thought he was out of his mind and that the plan would never work, and they weren't shy about voicing their opinions. But Captain Walsh stood firm and believed it was worth a shot. And though his officers and detectives had their doubts, they followed along with his plan. A sergeant brought in some boots and one of his wife's floral blankets and a knit hat. They named the mannequin Charlie McCarthy, after Edgar Bergen's ventriloquist dummy who appeared frequently on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Good old Charlie McCarthy rode around with detectives daily. The officers had taken note of how the men in the area slept and their routines of when they would come over and prepare their sleeping arrangements for the night. The detectives would take Charlie McCarthy out of the car and place him wrapped in a blanket, appearing to be sleeping, in the location the murders had taken place, arriving at the perfect time as not to be seen. A hidden surveillance camera was placed to watch over Charlie throughout the night. Officers also stood watch nearby, just out of sight. Each morning before daybreak, they would sneak back and load Charlie into the car before being spotted. You know that old saying, it ain't stupid if it works? Well, it totally applies here. Because roughly three weeks after Captain Walsh devised his unorthodox plan, it worked. The Las Vegas Sun and the Las Vegas Review Journal reported the details. It had all gone down a little something like this. At around 10.50 p.m., as had become their routine, detectives placed Charlie McCarthy out there to sleep. They tucked him in real good, completely covering the mannequin with a blanket. And like so many nights before, they watched and waited. 
At 3 a.m. the next morning, it finally happened. Officers watched as a man paced around the street corner in the dark of night for almost 14 minutes. He was wearing dark clothing. The man approached Charlie McCarthy two separate times as he paced, nervously looking around to make sure no one was watching. The third time he approached, the man pulled out a small sledgehammer from a white plastic Little Caesars pizza bag and took two quick shuffle steps near the head of the dummy. He then repeatedly struck the doll over the head and slowly began to walk away as he placed the would-be murder weapon back in the pizza bag. And that's when the police rolled up and apprehended 30-year-old Shane Schindler. According to Captain Walsh, as he spoke again to A&E TV, his phone rang at 3.30 that morning, and at first, he couldn't make out exactly what his sergeant was saying. He was very excitedly telling him something about murders, but he just couldn't quite make it out. That was until the sergeant took a breath and said, The dummy got attacked. At that point, Captain Walsh woke up his wife and told her Charlie McCarthy had been attacked. His intuition had been right all along, and his rather unconventional plan had paid off. The attacker, Shane Schindler, was brought down to the station for questioning. I'll go to this thing, unless you want to talk about something. You're going to go what? To the core. Yeah, I fully agree. Okay, all right. I didn't know if there was something up we're homicide detectives. Okay. We're not interested in your warrants. We don't care about the dummy. That's not our, our business. All right. Okay. Um, we're actually working. There's There's been some homeless people who have been hurt. Okay. Um, that have gotten seriously hurt. Okay. And that's what we're investigating. Okay. Okay. And um, some homeless men have, have gotten hit with a hammer. Okay. And that's why we're interested in this. Okay. Okay, that's why we're talking to you. Right. Okay, have you hit anybody with a hammer? No. Okay. You, um, there were some guys in the past, when, I'll, what I'm thinking of doing is I'll grab the book and show you some pictures and see if you know anybody. Okay. Maybe we can figure out who gave you that hammer. Okay. Um, you have not hit anybody with a hammer before? No. Could you hit somebody with a hammer and not remember it? No. Okay. Why would you pick this point in time to hit that mannequin with a hammer? And um, we can actually show you everything you did. Right, right. Yeah. Well, like I said, it was kind of weird, you know, seeing okay. a mannequin. But you actually laid down for a while? Yeah. Yeah, I was probably going to sleep there tonight, so... You thought about sleeping and just crashing right there. Yeah. But then you thought better of it and went back to the to the dummy. Uh, oh, yeah, that was kind of strange. The dummy's sitting there, so. Okay. How sure of you were, were you that that was a dummy? 100%. 100%? Yes. You Before you made contact with it? Yes. Those are made to look like humans. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. When you first hit it, were you sure it was a dummy? Yes. I don't know how. Well, like I said, it wasn't breathing, it wasn't moving. You know, I plus that was ever sticking out. What if it 
you're sure now. What, if, what I'm saying is, what if it turned out to be human? Would that have bothered you? Well, yeah, of course, but I knew it wasn't human. If it was human, I wouldn't have did it. The problem being is we've had some other people, people, struck in the head in the exact same fashion that you struck this dummy in the head. Okay. Um, that's, that's something that we're uh, worried about. Okay. Okay? If you had something to do with that, if, if there's something going on with you, we need to know what's going on. There's nothing going on. This is the first incident I've ever had like this. And I knew it was a dummy, and if it was a real person, what never happened. So... Do you need help? I'm going over to Clark County. That's pretty much my biggest fear right now. You're, you're going to go to Clark County. That's I am? Yeah. Well, we're going to make sure the officer arrests you and takes you to jail. Why? Because you make us nervous. I do? Yeah, you do. You do. Why? Because I think you're I think you're out there killing people. I'm not killing nobody. I don't know, I think you are. I thought I was gonna walk out of here. Are you really gonna have him arrest me? Yeah, you have a warrant and I I think you you need to go over to the jail. Um we're gonna get a search warrant so I can get the DNA from you. Um we're gonna get a search warrant, we're gonna take your clothing. Um so, I'm, I'm, again, Ryan told you when we sat down, we're going to be really upfront with you. And uh, you also said I could walk out of here at any time. But I guess that you was... Could, you could stop the questioning anytime you want. Yeah. Uh, but things are changing as we go. The more we get to know you, the more you worry me. I do? Yeah, you do. <clears throat> I honestly honestly believe that you're going around hitting people in the head with a hammer and killing them. It's not me. While they're sleeping. It's not me. Okay. Who is that? I don't know. The whole reason we put that dummy out was to see who'd come along and hit it. You're the man. And you're the guy. Okay. The same spots where other people have been killed same position. That's how we knew where to put the dummy. Okay. <sighs> so I'm going to make it be in Clark County. As much as Shane Schindler wanted to avoid the Clark County Jail, that's exactly where he was headed. Because after that interview, he was charged with attempted murder and a concealed weapon charge. As I'm sure you can imagine, detectives didn't buy his bullshit story that he knew he was attacking a mannequin, and further, they believed he was responsible for the murders of Daniel Adape and Dave Dunn. But could they really charge him with the attempted murder of a mannequin? And could they prove that Shane Schindler had murdered Daniel and Dave? Let's take that last question first. After Schindler was arrested, detectives executed a search warrant on the motel room where he had been living. They were convinced Schindler was their guy for both murders, and they were going to try like hell to prove it. They recovered Schindler's phone, and on it they found not one, 
but two selfies taken back in November of 2016, around the same time that first man who had survived had been attacked. The selfies were of Shane lying on his back on a blanket, looking dumb as hell, in the exact spot Daniel and Dave had been killed. They were able to identify the location due to a sewer cover near Schindler's head in each selfie. And this joker was, in fact, just about as dumb as he looked in his sewer selfies. Because in his motel room, homicide detectives recovered a Harbor Freight receipt showing that Schindler had returned a hammer to the store in exchange for a four-pound engineer's hammer, the one he had used to attack the dummy. And I just gotta stop here and talk about that hammer for just a moment. Several news reports referred to it as a ball-peen hammer, which it is not. And further, there is no such thing as a four-pound ball-peen hammer. That type of hammer is weighed in ounces, not pounds, and a four-pound ball-peen hammer wouldn't even be practical, since its main use is for driving chisels or punches and bending metal. Oddly enough, your girl has a little bit of construction experience. I was actually a plumber's apprentice for a year. True story, but I'll save it for another time. So when I kept reading four-pound ball-peen hammer, I was thoroughly confused. What the media kept referring to as a ball-peen hammer was actually an engineer's hammer, and those are measured in pounds and not ounces. I know this may sound petty, but stick with me for just a minute. An engineer's hammer is more commonly known as a mini sledge or a short-handled sledgehammer, and the only major difference between it and an actual sledgehammer is the length of its handle, hence the name. Their main purpose is for heavy hammering or demolition work. The amount of damage the mini sledge would be able to inflict is far greater than that of a ball-peen hammer. And with that said, let's get back to the story. Schindler had previously told detectives he bought that hammer for $3 off of a homeless man. But that Harbor Freight receipt determined that was a lie. The purchase of a hammer seems like a strange thing to lie about. That is, unless you're a homicidal tick turd who carries around a four-pound mini sledgehammer in a little Caesars bag, attacking defenseless men as they sleep for no reason whatsoever. But that particular hammer didn't appear to be what was used in the actual murders. So unfortunately, it proved nothing other than the fact that he was a liar. Aside from his lies, his bullshit story about knowing he was attacking a mannequin, and the two shitty selfies, there wasn't any other evidence recovered linking Shane Schindler to the murders. And any defense attorney worth their salt could have ripped apart that evidence in five minutes flat. Investigators and the district attorney's office had a difficult decision to make. One that they had been contemplating long before Schindler fell for their decoy and attacked the mannequin. A question Captain Walsh had asked himself a hundred times before. What happened if the mannequin did in fact get attacked? The DA's office would have to come up with charges that would stick, 
because even after their thorough investigation, there just wasn't enough to charge Shane Schindler with murder. But they believed the video evidence was clear enough to prove that Schindler did in fact intend to murder someone the night he attacked the mannequin. That leads us to the first question. Could someone be charged for attacking a mannequin, which, as we all know, is an inanimate object? According to fine law, charges can be brought against you for attacking an inanimate object. Vandalism or destruction of property are the two most common that come to mind, but it can go deeper than that. According to the article, a man in Connecticut was arrested and charged in 2014 for stabbing a melon in a, quote, passive-aggressive way, meant to send a warning to his soon-to-be ex-wife after she turned over the location of his drug stash to police. Another case was that of a woman in Wyoming who stabbed a teddy bear and was charged with assault because the teddy bear stabbing was used to threaten another human being and cause that person to be in immediate fear. There are plenty of examples, but none of the charges were quite as serious as the attempted murder charge Shane Schindler was facing. Schindler's attorney, Clark County Public Defender Phil Kahn, was quick to point that out, calling the charge a, quote, legal impossibility stating someone can't kill an inanimate object. However, the state had Nevada appellate law on their side to support the charge. In 1976, the state Supreme Court rejected an argument asserting that, quote, since it is legally impossible to commit the crime, it must also be legally impossible to attempt the crime. The ruling went on to read, we decline to concern ourselves with the niceties of distinction between physical and legal impossibility. That ruling was affirmed again in 1989. Law professor Deborah Denno spoke to the Chicago Tribune and explained that Nevada law, like laws in most states, take into account what a defendant is thinking at the time of a crime. She stated to the outlet, you can't murder a mannequin, but if the facts were as he believed them to be, he would have been bashing the head of a human being. Therefore, the charge of attempted murder was appropriate. Schindler initially pled not guilty, but seemingly feeling the pressure, agreed to sit down with prosecutors in an attempt to hash out a deal. According to court documents, prosecutors agreed not to file charges against Schindler for the other three cases, the two murder charges and the attack in which the man had survived. In exchange, Schindler would admit what everyone already knew, that he believed the mannequin was a real, living, breathing person at the time he bashed it in the head with a sledgehammer. On March 23, 2017, Shane Schindler pled guilty to a single charge of attempted murder. He was sentenced to 8 to 20 years behind bars. The prosecutor later spoke to the Las Vegas Review-Journal and stated, The evidence was reasonably compelling that Mr. Schindler was responsible for all of the hammer attacks. This seemed to be a reasonable resolution considering the evidentiary constraints that we had. This wasn't the outcome the state wanted, 
However, they felt it was their best chance for Schindler to be held accountable. On the flip side, Schindler's defense team was pleased with the outcome. Attorney Ashley Siskelak also speaking to the outlet and stating, The negotiations were tough but fair. They were in the best interest of my client. We are happy with the result. But few shared Ashley's happiness with the outcome and the fact that the man both investigators and the district attorney believed to have murdered two whole people would never be charged for their deaths. The murders of two men who had done nothing to provoke him. Two men who were particularly vulnerable due to their life circumstances, and a third who had narrowly escaped death. Shane Schindler is currently incarcerated at the High Desert State Prison in Clark County, Nevada. According to DOC records, his projected release date is January 9, 2028. A&E TV asked Captain Walsh if the victim's families knew about his plan to use the decoy to capture the men's killer. He revealed that they did, and they were grateful, particularly the family of Daniel Adape, who were initially concerned that police wouldn't do much about his murder because they thought the police would view him as, quote, just a homeless guy. Captain Walsh stated they didn't think we would care. We showed them that we did. The captain went on to say that though he never got the chance to meet Daniel, he felt as if he did get to know him through the stories his family told. Daniel had a family that loved him, and he loved them back. He just chose to live outside. That's his right and his choice, Captain Walsh stated. Both Daniel Adalpe and David Dave Dunn were loved by many. Their circumstances were in no way equal to the value of their life because there's not a price tag you can place on the quality of a good, kind, and generous heart, something it's clear Daniel and Dave both possessed. Daniel Adalpe will forever be remembered by his family as a man who loved all the Chicago sports teams, heavy metal music, and animals of every kind. Dave Dunn was a friend to all who crossed his path. He'd often give his last penny and go without to help someone in need. And that, my friend, is a hell of a legacy to leave behind. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'll be bringing you an all-new case next week, and I can't wait. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 